done a push bike ride before and that was kind of the main influence to wanting to do it again. Me and Dickie Anlon, we were both 19 and we'd both been like simultaneously dumped by our girlfriends. I was moping around at home and my dad's like, oh, why don't you go to France and pick grapes? And I looked at him like, what, you can do that? And he said, oh, I, yeah. And he's, he's kind of painted this picture of these beautiful sunny vineyards and these sultry Mediterranean women. I only had, I got a bike, I bought this push bike, it's like 50 quid. Just an old drop handle and Dickie Anlon had a drop handle bike already. We didn't have any um, pedal clips or special shoes or, I don't even think, I didn't even have um, cycling shorts. Dickie Anlon did, he borrowed them off his brother. But yeah, no fancy gear and we had this tent. We just strapped on the front. We had pannier frames and some bags, like, got some second-hand bags off a bloke. My sister, a boyfriend at the time, a guy called Charlie, his next-door neighbour was a truck driver and he'd got us a lift down in the south of England, so we helped him with a loading, loading and unloading of this truck on the way down through England, and then we got to Kent and we rode across from the Agar Ferry. We rode all the way through down to southern France, a place called Pepignan, Rode up to this nearest vineyard, saw this bloke, and we said, uh, We've come to pick grapes. And this French dude looks at us, but they are not ready. <laughs> oh, shit. We end up looking back now, we might have got a job doing pruning or something like that, but we just assumed the only job was actually picking them. And so we just said, Okay. Just ended up riding over the Pyrenees into Spain because Dickie knew a, a guy over there, a Spanish fella. He got us a job in a cafe. That ride, it was a real rite of passage. Like, it was a real boy-to-mannered kind of moment. You know, we were just kids when we set off. When I come back, I felt like I'd actually made that move into being, you know, like a young man. The trip was just, you know, skin of his teeth stuff sometimes. You know, we'd just sleep wherever we could. Sometimes get down by the cops with that sleeping on house roofs and they come up and say, Oh, you try to sleep in a bull ring and kipped on a lot of beaches and even kipped on a roundabout in the middle of a busy road once. Yeah, that was, that was just a, a real um, roughing it kind of experience, you know, with shaving cow wing mirrors and we learnt, we learnt a lot of hard lessons and we had an absolute ball. We got right down to the south of Spain and we were staring across the streets of Gibraltar to Morocco. You know, I just wanted to keep going, but we'd run out of cash. We just had enough money to get back north. It was a real downer heading home. Like, there was an actual, the actual heading home part was a bit of an adventure, to be honest, but the actual... Once I'd got over the joy of meeting my family, just the sitting down back in the same environment where you left it's like you just woke up from a dream you know a good dream so this time around riding from India inside you know I had no real intention of coming back and I think that's it's no offence to where you live sometimes you've just got to get away from your old self you've got to get away from all those people who have an expectation of you uh, you know so you'd never do that or yeah he's always like that or you know people 
kind of limit you. They don't mean to sometimes as well. It's just the way you perceive people. Just breaking out of that, you can reinvent yourself. As I've said in the introduction to this podcast, like I met Brian in a place I was trying to escape, you know. I thought he was just another eight-pint hero, you know, old beer talk. But Brian was different, you know. He had an older brother called Jim, and he'd been to India. And he, he was a full-on traveller. I think he lived overseas by then. But in India, you know, he, Brian had all these pictures of his brother with his big bushy beard and riding up on ponies up into the Himalaya and living in caves, smoking the herbs. His mum, Teresa, said when he come home, he just couldn't stand the sound of ticking clocks. You know? And I've got to admit, I'm a bit the same. It's like they're counting your life away one tick at a time. Jim, Bry's brother, he'd, he'd stay for a bit and then he'd be off again and must have seemed so exciting to Brian and he you know, must have really influenced him when he was a kid. I went round to his house, he lived in Illingworth, probably a few miles down the hill from Queensbury and his mum Teresa invited me in. Absolute lovely lady, tall gem. She's Would you like something to eat, love? Cup of tea. Teresa, she had um, ten kids, and Bri was the baby. Uh, when I walked in, I could hear the Saturday horse racing going on in the front room, and Bri's old man Joe's there watching the telly, you know, with the newspaper there, and he's obviously got a bet on. Uh, Teresa shut the front room door, and we went into the kitchen, and I rolled out the map on the kitchen table. I'm showing Bri the, the route. I felt a bit like a car salesman. I was trying to say... <laughs> I felt like if I said the wrong thing, he might just go, oh, that's a bit much for me. You know, and this was sobriety. I'm showing Brian the rough route I'd drawn. We're going to start in New Delhi, ride across to the Himalaya, Nepal, you know, ride through Nepal, ride up through the mountains into Myanmar, then Thailand and Malaysia, duck across to Sumatra and Indonesia and ride over the volcanoes onto the west coast, and then get as close as we could to Australia via ferries and then flying. But it was um, a large-scale political map, you know. It had no contours. Or, you know, it didn't show how serious the climbs were. It really played down the, the, the size of the journey. And also, psychologically, it looked better too because, you know, we're heading southeast, kind of downhill. I probably looked at the route I was going and he said, yeah, 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 I like it. But I think, like, it was just the going bit he liked best. I was I was giving him a chance to get out of there. Brian, he worked at a place called Denon Velvets. He was a supervisor and they made the velvet, the strip that stopped light getting in a photographic film. <laughs> so I'm sure they had other uses for this velvet, but that was one of the main ones he, he always tell me about and, he said, you know, there's a lot of fumes in there and you'd be looking over these noisy machines. I'd seen him out the front one night. He was, he was he used to work shifts and it was just it was like a summer evening and he was sat on the windowsill outside supping a cup of tea and trying to get some fresh air. And he told me, like, you know, I've, I've sold my car and my sister-in-law's got me this bike and Jim said he, he had a, some Indian rupees stashed in his top drawer. So he had like 150 quid's worth of Indian rupees, so Bry's got that. And everything seemed to be coming together. 
We'd even got some extra work. We we started working for my stepdad, Fred. We're on like this big scaffold, this shaky scaffold about 20 metres up off the ground. There was like a big square chimney and they had these massive blocks. Like we were crowbarring them off, getting them loose. And then we'd lift them up and we'd put them in this plastic chute that um, went down into this skip. We had this other guy working with us and he was a bit of a big lummox, you know, a big bit goofy. He was trying to carry this block on his own, but he couldn't get it into the chute. So he just threw it over the side. And it's spinning, we're watching it, and it's spinning on the way down. And then when it hit the deck, it just bounced in the air and started cartwheeling across the car park. And there's Freddy, he's up this ladder pointing a wall with his back to it. And we're all shouting, you know, look out, Fred, Fred! And <laughs> turn around at the last minute and this massive block just like whooped straight past his ear. Like it actually grazed his ear and it told me later it actually clipped the, his shoulder of his jacket too and it smashed against this wall right next to him this goof looks down he's leaning over the scaffold and he just said sorry <laughs> it's like he'd spilled beer on his shoes or something it was getting closer and closer to uh, leaving Saturday afternoon and we were walking through town and went past the pub brass cat and everyone was in the beer garden having a good laugh, so we, we went in there and we had a pint. And we got these mats and these sleeping bags and people are asking us what they're for. And then, of course, we're telling them we're off to ride our push bikes from India to to Australia. And you're sort of getting a mixed reaction. A lot of people, you know, they're slapping you on the back and saying, oh, brilliant. Oh, God, I wish I could do that. And then you'll get that real, you know, normally put someone who's had a couple more beers and they're a bit less considerate of of pissing on your chips, you know. Like, oh, what? India? Why would you go there? Riding all that way on that little saddle? You've got to be a pufter. I just said to this guy, no, no, we don't have saddles. We just ride on the purse. <laughs> Shut him up. And we went out into the beer garden and it was a lovely sunny day, actually. That's probably why everyone was out. People had, like, burnt noses showing off that they'd actually been burnt by a sun, you know. And we're drinking Guinness and laying back on our on our roll mats and got sleeping bags and kind of practicing really. <laughs> Felt good. I guess that was the difference. Now we were in the pub, and we were kind of getting a bit carried away and being like eight pint heroes. But we actually had equipment with us now, so it kind of meant a bit more. We had props. <laughs> it was my last night of going out, and all my old mates like. Um, JB, Andy Mansley, uh, Chris Keyes, Dave Ellis. We'd we'd gone out in Halifax, and they were all saying to me, "Bah, oh, you never really get totally pissed, Moz." And the truth was, for one, I didn't like being totally pissed. I'd, you know, I'd woken up sleeping in gutters and stuff like that a few times, and not knowing where you are. It's a horrible feeling, and as a lot of you will be uh, relate to. <laughs> I'm not saying all my audience are alcoholics, but if you're liking these stories, you've probably got some kind of connection. So this particular night, we're out, and they kept getting me drinks, and I don't do vodka. Vodka's like, I don't know, I think certain drinks do certain things to people, but vodka, 
you just kind of have these gaps in your night. You know, one minute you're walking down the street, next minute you're climbing up a tree or something, or up on a scaffold. But John just kept plonking these drinks in front of me, like on, on a loop. I'd turn around and be like, a vodka and orange, turn around, vodka and orange. Come on, Mars, fucking hell, down in one, go, go. I come out of this club and I was, I was bollaxed. This ute came past like, so I've just gone, yo, I'm off. And I've just like jumped on the back of this pickup truck and I'm heading down this, like a cobble street behind the peace hall. See you lads, I'm uh, off to Australia. See you in the next life. But then this, this truck started going faster. Once it got through the crowd of people, it sped up and it's going fast down this cobble road and I couldn't get off. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh shit, we're going to get out here. So I, I turn around, I'm trying to climb in because I was saying perched on the corner. I looked in the front and I saw the driver's eyes in the rearview mirrors with his girlfriend, young fella. And he's just booted it. I just cartwheeled off the back of this pickup truck and just smashed my head on the ground. So I'm laid there, groaning, and I've got blood on my elbow. And this big lumps growing on the back of my head. I'm trying to look above my head. I'm trying to look up the street, because that's where all my mates are, and I'm waiting for them to come down and help me. But they were actually up the road in the blue with this guy. This guy was trying to start a fight with one of them, and... It's all getting a bit rowdy. Yeah, I'm laid in this road under this orange glow, just thinking, alcohol's going to win and I'm never getting out of here. I can hear these women coming up the street, like clip-clopping up the street, sounding like car horses. And they'll... <laughs> this lass looks down at me. Fucking pisshead. <laughs> they all just walked around me and left me. On the day we were meant to leave, Bryce still wasn't home. It was about four in the morning and we were meant to get a lift at 5am. Finally, he come skipping down the road. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 just one last night out. <laughs> so it was all packed though, so we got all ready and his, his mum's out the front, Teresa, and she's throwing holy water over everyone. She's like, Mainly over Brian, of course. And she's telling me, you know, look after him. He's my baby. And I'm, Don't worry, I will. I will. And she threw a bit over me. and oh, She even threw some over the driver. And that was that. Got in the van and chucked our bikes in and we were gone. As it got lighter, we could see the people outside all squashed up against the windows. We'd been getting glimpses through the auto doors because every time it opened, you'd hear all the noise and you'd see all this commotion. And it was a riot out there. It was like a big scrum between the porters, taxi drivers and passengers. And we, eventually, we got through, got a stamp, and we dragged our bike boxes outside and this bloke's come straight up to me. Caddy? And before I knew it, he's grabbed my bag and he's run off and he's using it like bait to lure us to a taxi. We get we get to the back of back of all these cute taxis and there's this dude sat on the bonnet having a chaff on a cigarette. 
and he smiles and he said, you know, what are you wanting? We realised we didn't really know where we were going. <laughs> we didn't have a clue. Bit of a hindsight note here is, you know, if if you want like a unique travel experience, don't follow like a guidebook, Lonely Planet or any other guidebook. Because you can end up following a path that lots of others are going on. But saying that, when you arrive in a town for the first time, they are brilliant for accommodation, um, how it communicates. And there's maps too, so you know where the hell you're going. I definitely dumbed it down a bit when I'd just drawn these lines on the map. It was something like, right out the airport toward the Himalaya. We're in this taxi and the driver was playing upbeat Hindi music and it went well with all the commotion out on the road. So, you know, there's these lucky charms flailing around the cab that's hanging off his rearview mirror and he's weaving through all the rickshaws and bikes and buses and holy cows and everything else, people. He was taking us to a place that's about 10 k's from the airport called Carol Bar. As we approached there in this air-conditioned taxi, I didn't want to get out. We, we <laughs> I don't know what Brian was thinking, but it was so thick with people. Like Halifax has a population density of currently now 2000, you know, 2021, there's 565 people per square kilometre. And this place, Carol Bar, it's got a population density of 33,000 people per square kilometre. <laughs> I think I think it was lucky we didn't actually know half of the shit we were going to have to do and half of the hardships because if you just get fed little challenges each day, you can deal with it. So I guess we were lucky, really, we didn't know what we had ahead of us. The, the driver went up to the guy, the concierge or porter, at the hotel and there was a bit of a cash a few rupees changed hands and then they carried our stuff in for us which was great it's called the Sheraton Palace it's a bit of an overstatement next day we, we'd been too long farting around putting our bikes together by the time we got outside it was midday we stood on the periphery of this massive congregation of two wheel, four wheels six, eight wheels, twelve wheels you know, timber wheels, animals, hooves, people. And there was no real delineation between the road and the footpath. And it was really dangerous because you couldn't actually move. You couldn't move away from, a, say, a big truck coming because the, the crowds were pushing you back. It's like being in a mosh pit. There was a, a murder rickshaw swerved in and just missed Bry, and then that sort of prompted us we had to get going because we were getting swallowed up with all these people. And then a truck was right next to us and this big wheel was getting closer and pushing us back toward the curb. But the people on the curb were spilling out in the road and we were boxed in. So we had to get off our bikes and kind of force our way into a, a tiny bit of space. And then we had another go and we tried to get going again and we, we got a bit bolder each time and a bit ruder, I guess, because 
when someone starts pushing you, you start pushing back and all of a sudden it's fine. So we're just pushing away through these this crowd all getting pushed. It's four, about 40 degrees and there's, and there's no air because everyone's everything's blocking the breeze. The buses and trucks have these megahorns and they're so loud they rip right through you when they blast them. And folks are shouting, arguing and a lot of people are actually just laughing because they're used to it. It's just part of each day for them. Bri looked at me as if to say, which way? <laughs> and I, I've got no idea because all the road signs are hidden behind bodies and vehicles. We, and we'd stop to try and ask directions, point to this map, but we just got surrounded. They were squashed right up against us. I was worried we were going to get pickpocketed, rocking the head side to side and deliberating and pointing in different directions and crowd is just building and building and building so then we just took off again we'd try and ask again and then the same thing had happened and we just kept sort of hopscotching out of this place until it thinned out a bit that's how we left New Delhi stopping, getting mobbed and then taking off again we somehow got on the right road we had uh, drinking bottles with this glucose in it and that was just keeping us going we didn't even stop for any food. We, I don't think we dare stop. I don't think there was any sense that wasn't completely overwhelmed. In the late afternoon, the country started opening up and we actually saw our first mud hut. There was a woman out the front and she was pulling the cheap plastic bags, like the single-use plastic bags, out of the monsoon muds. That was a really refreshing thing about India. Nothing was wasted back then. I don't know what it's like now, but we saw a, a monkey, our first monkey running on this wall top and lush paddy fields started appearing on the edges of the road. The setting sun was reflecting off the water and there was these beautiful giant kingfishers. They're as big as kookaburras in Australia. And they were just looking down into the paddy fields at the, at the fish. And it was almost peaceful. It was calming down. But this truck, he'd come from downwind and he'd come right alongside us. And he blasted his, this mega horn. He nearly blew us into this paddy field. It was one of those, fucking hell, moments. And we're holding our chests and looking up the road at this, this truck that's passing us. And through the dust, I can see the co-driver. It seemed like it was the same guy every time after that. Like a moustache, sunglasses, and this bandana, and this big cheeky smile. And it seemed, they weren't doing it on purpose because they were desensitized to it, but it seemed like they were, they were going, I'll get this bastard. Just blasting the horn and waiting for the reaction. The trucks were hand-painted. They kind of got this chrome and then all these hand-painted designs on the cabs and on the timber trays at the back. And the real workhorse trucks, they looked like ex-military trucks or something. And they always had, on the mud flaps, they'd have different characters, normally movie stars, like Indian movie stars or from Bollywood. This, this particular one had uh, Sylvester Stallone on the 
mud flats with an AK-47. The horns, the horns, I call them mega horns. I saw an advertisement on a billboard once when we were riding. They showed this horn, pride of place, you know. They were like massive fog horns. And the rule was, if, real if you sound your horn first, then you got right away. And you can do what you want. And it seemed like you could mow, mow down a crowd of people if, if you sounded your horn first. A couple of days after this, there was three trucks all racing each other down this country lane and they'd filled up the whole road and, and they're all blasting the horns and me and Brian just had to jump into this paddy field along with these two farmers we all rolled down this bank and they just did what the fuck they wanted as we were riding there was this smell on the wind a real horrible smell you know that smell of death like roadkill so we ride up a bit further and we start hearing like these dog yelps and this squawking. And on the left there's this um, river bank, a big river there and the, it looks like the monsoon waters have subsided and there's these two bloated buffalo on the river bank. And this local fella's skinning them. He's got these two big meat cleavers and he's hacking into them. He's got gum boots on and he's covered in guts and blood and stuff and all around him there's all these um, there's feral dogs it's about 10 feral dogs and about 10 probably 10 of each there's like 10 feral dogs 10 vultures and 10 crows and they're all just fighting for scraps from this this guy <laughs> these vultures were big you know they, they were sort of like not quite waist high. Yeah, almost waist high. Me and Brian had stood there with his gobs open watching him. And he saw us and he'd come up and he's running toward the fence in these gumboots, pulling himself out of the mud. And he's waving, the <laughs> he's waving, but he's waving the meat cleavers at us. And all the putrid flesh was dripping down to off his elbows. It looked like wax. We just got on our bikes and took off. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. We'd only managed to cover 47 miles that day, which, looking back, I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> I think we kind of hoped to do about 100 miles a day. We ended up doing 100 k's a day in the end. Sometimes, depending on what the roads were like. Some of the roads were so bad and... The Indian bikes and the Nepalese bikes, they, they were, I think they were like the Chinese bikes. They had, they looked really old-fashioned, but they had these mega springs in the saddle. And the locals would just sort of be doing up and down on these rough roads and take all the shocks through their asses. Whereas we had these supposedly superior mountain bikes, but back then there was no suspension on them. And they had no give, so on these rough roads you just get really sore elbows and, and asses from bouncing up and down. We ended up in a place called Harpur. It was just after dark. You couldn't see a thing. It was pitch black. It was like being out in the absolute middle of nowhere because there was limited electricity back then. I had just a little tiny pen light 
I tied it to my handlebars, kind of going against the flow of this massive crowd of people. And you can't see the faces, it's just these black shapes and you're trying to s- squeeze between them. We got into town and there were a couple more lights there, but it was still really dark. And the mechanics, believe it or not, were actually, they were setting fire to car tyres to get the light so they could see what they were doing on the truck. So there's this big black plumes of smoke going up in the air. In England, you just didn't know the person. But out here, we got a lot of attention. It was overwhelming. It makes me realise that being famous is, is a curse. When you're hot and tired and hungry, it's hard to deal with, and sometimes you'd crack. But sometimes you'd get like a hundred people just intently staring at everything you do. We chose to be there, it's our own issues. But sometimes you just you weren't the perfect person and you'd just crack, you might try and stare back at them or something like that, stare each one out, but they didn't mean anything by it at all. Um, there was one time this this guy, we were trying to cook some food because we were starving. And we tried to go off the road in the shade, but where the shade was, it was just full of shit. People had just gone down there and done taken a dump, and there's flies everywhere. And we'd gone back up, so the only place we could cook was on the edge of the road itself. And I was actually making chips. I'd got some oil and got some spuds, and we were frying up these chips. And this guy just stopped, and he was just staring at us like drilling holes in us while we were trying to make these chips and it was rude I admit it was rude but no I'm not going to tell that story I sound like a wanker <laughs> no <I'm> just... <laughs> oh no no don't tell that story uh... <laughs> shall I tell the story Okay, so I just don't want to sound like a complete dick, but you've got to put yourself in the situation. I think this was in West Bengal. This was a lot a while later, but we. <laughs> so he's with his wife, and he was watching us so intently, and we just wanted to. We just wanted some space, and it stopped, and he had his, he was holding his chin and just watching watching and watching and I just had enough so I just rolled down the back of my cycling shorts so my bum crack was like really exposed and I (laughs) I was squatting down cooking these chips and I turned I could see him out the corner of my eye and his wife was absolutely cracking up laughing (laughs) but he had this really stern face and he he didn't blink I don't know, you, you couldn't shock it. You couldn't shock an Indian person, I don't think. They've seen they've seen a lot of stuff. We didn't have any guidebook, any language. We couldn't even say, um, hotel, please, now, or guest house. So we were sort of stuck in a corner trying to suss out where there was a guest room. And this bloke in a yellow T-shirt just kind of came out of the crowd and said, oh, you need help. Yeah, and he's, follow me, come on. So we're following this dude through the crowd, and he's got this bright yellow T-shirt, thank God, so we're just following this bright T-shirt, and he 
found us this little guest house. It was just a, a room with a little tiny table and a fan, you know. The, that's the luxury of being in that space. It seemed a lot better in the morning. It was nice and cool and there wasn't as, as much traffic. We'd been cycling through the paddies and we'd seen this sadhu guy outside this temple. He's under this big banyan tree, like this big fig tree. And they put big uh, ribbons and decorations around and they're really sacred, which... He's got like long dreadlocks and really dark skin. And he's got these robes on and he's cross-legged and he's... Um, we saw him in the garden, he's pulling up all this uh, marijuana. And he's sat there under this... And he's sat under this tree, chuffing on this big joint. And he's offered us some, but, you know, we don't need it. <laughs> we, we, had a, we were high on, um, on just eating food, you know. Blood sugars would go down. You'd eat some food, your blood sugars would spike up. I think because between New Delhi and Nepal, even in Nepal, because it's not all hills, you go across a delta and then you go up into the hills, over the foothills. I think on the on the plains, people seem more intense. Maybe it was the heat, maybe it was probably the population and the fire, but in the hills, people were more tired and they didn't hassle you as much because <laughs> they were knackered as well. And they were often walking up hills carrying big loads. But this sadhu was super chill because he was... You know, he was stunned, so he was just chilling out, and he didn't hustle us at all. He's just like, just waved us under the tree and offered us some water. So we laid under this tree and watching the sky go by, and he's got this monkey he's adopted, this little baby, and it's running up the tree, climbing along a branch and then getting to the thinnest section of branch and then just dropping down onto this cycle rickshaw that was parked on the on the edge of the road. It's like a big hood on it. And the sadhu guy was just watching it. And then if he got too close to the road, he'd throw a stone at it. And it'd run back, scamper back up the tree. And just kept doing this. And we, we was falling asleep and waking up and falling asleep. But then we realised we'd, we'd left it way too light and down the track you'd, you'd start planning planning your days much better than that you'd normally get some food early then get a shower the best way you could it could be a hose pipe or just jump in in a river however you could get it cool yourself down then put all your long clothes on so you wouldn't get flogged by mozzies and then you'd just tiptoe to the place you were going to camp and when you camped, it could be in a bus stop or on a soccer pitch or under a bridge. Wherever you camped, you just made sure that it was just one night so no one knew. They couldn't get any sort of um, habitual on you so they could come back and rob you. But at this point, we, we were all new to this. and So we're riding along. We had no idea what was ahead of us. We didn't plan, we didn't know if there was a town coming up and it was pitch black. And we 
our torch was shit. It was just that little mag torch. And we couldn't see a thing. <laughs> We're just relying on the trucks that were nearly running us off the road. We'd, we'd just follow the lights of these trucks and then go a bit further, go a bit further. We couldn't camp on the sides because apart from there being like potential snakes, cobras, and there was actually a lot of flooded land from the paddies. Plus, there was lots of places where people stopped and took a crap and whatnot. We were riding along for ages and then we saw this really faint yellow light on the right side. As we got closer, there was a white building, like a gatehouse, and there was this big stone slab tank out the front, and it was full of water, and these, there was these dudes out the front, and they were bathing themselves with this water. Looking back, it was probably holy water, but we, sacred water, but we, we had no idea. We thought this was a hotel. And they waved us over. Yeah, come on, come on. And they're having a bit of crack with us, and... It gave us a ladle and the soap and we had a shower, like, you know. We just had a quick wash down and there was these pine trees at the back and as the as it was cooling down, the breeze was blowing through these pine trees and blowing this beautiful pine scent toward us. And in the trees, there's all these fireflies, there's thousands of them, and they were flying around the branches. But behind them, because there was no light pollution, there was just this thick blanket of stars and there was it's hard to sort of work out what was a firefly and what was a star until it moved. It's just gorgeous. And it seemed like an oasis to us. And we looked back and the at the gatehouse was this small stone veranda. And there was a couple of teenagers there sat on these rugs. And there was this old dude uh, chaffing on a chillum, you know, gurgling in the big pot like and the young, younger teenage guys had waved us over. We sat chatting to them, and we kind of just rolled our sleeping bags out. There was just a little light on this veranda, but there were so many insects. Like, when we were riding, if you, if you didn't keep your mouth shut, you know, you probably wouldn't need dinner because there's just so much stuff flying about. And they'd hit you in the eyes and stuff when you were riding. That was another reason to uh, get yourself sorted out on camp before dark. This one of these teenagers, he he said, "Ah, oh, fish, come on, fish," and we'd we'd cooled right down. But he said, "Fish, fish, have fish," and I was feeling a bit crook because I think I was already getting some deli belly because we're using chlorination tablets, but apparently they're not that great, and the, uh, like amoebic dysentery and stuff, you needed to use iodine to get rid of that, and the best way was to boil it. And now I just I'd guarantee I'd be boiling everything. But back then we just had like a British gas type. You know, you really need a stove. You can use kerosene or some easily acquired fuel. And we didn't have that. So we're drinking, we're drinking sketchy water, basically. This guy gave us a fish. And I didn't realise until then that all my lips were cracked from riding the bite. And... All this chilli was getting into my lips. Then we got really hot because of this chilli. and start sweating. And all these insects start sticking to our faces. And there's all these mosquitoes. And I'm feeling a bit sick and I'm laid back on my sleeping bag. Because we didn't... We, we weren't even smart enough to have mosquito nets then. We had a British tent 
But British tents are designed to keep the cold out, not keep the ventilation, so you couldn't put that up. And then these locusts came in, and they, as we were trying to get to sleep, and one got tangled in my hair, and it was scratching my face. Chillum guys just slurping on this hooker pipe all night long. <laughs> it just ma- It's just making me feel like spewing up. It's like my intestines just dripping. And I'm looking up at the stars, and the night's lasting forever. Like rocking around on this stone floor. Eventually, I get to sleep. And then it's only like an hour, and this truck pulls up and blasts its horn, one of these mega horns. You wouldn't think it was the middle of the night, because they're not worried about sound. There's no tiptoeing around the kitchen. They're just fully like... So we're bleary-eyed looking at these trucks. Finally got back to sleep. And then there was an almighty... Honey! Chillum guy's got this mic. The prayer was nice. It was just so loud, and it was all fully crackling and distorted. And it's so loud, because this guy, he's not just got, like, a little amplifier with him. He's got all these sort of bullhorn-type speakers running all around the mosque and then running down the road so all the locals can hear the morning prayer. We're just riding off at 5 a.m. Pannier bags half tied up. And the speakers are just chasing us down the street. So we're back on the road again and we're riding and riding and we got caught in this flood at a place called Muradabad. And the traffic had been backed up for a couple of days. And all the sewerage had washed up onto the road and there was dead rats and shit. And there's these little black pigs with like mohawks snorting around in this in this shit and we couldn't move we were like a tile in a mosaic we were literally just jammed in there with a whole collection of road traffic and we were stuck there for hours and hours we'd been wading through this stuff like literally getting shit all through our feet and socks it was just getting hotter and hotter of course with this sun and all this this sewerage filth and it turned into a dust and it it was building in the air as well now. And then you got all the fumes, all the kerosene off the big trucks. There's a water buffalo in front of me in this rickshaw. And we're just fully hemmed in. There's like street vendors, people with carts, all stuck in this. You couldn't squeeze through it. I don't think you could have walked through it. It's like going through a pub and you've had a few beers. You can get through because you've kind of got the same synchronicity as all the drunk people. It's like a wave flowing through this pub like, you dudes. But in this... <laughs> In this place, you just could not move. All of a sudden, I started just flying forward. My head threw back. And I look around, and there's a dude on an Enfield motorbike, and he's revving his engine and trying to force me through this about two-inch gap between this rickshaw and this water buffalo. It was just ridiculously hot, and we are stuck in this kind of arena. It was just intense. Tempers were flying. Finally, hours and hours later, it was, we managed to get through. Things started moving and we just took off at high speed and we were riding as fast as we could to get away from all this traffic and noise and chaos. We went about 15k and under the midday sun, it's like 40 degrees and we, we kind of just collapsed in this, found a bit of shade in this gateway so we just laid down and 
this farmer come down and, oh, come on, come on. He's dragged us up, him and his wife. Come on, come on in. And they got us into this farmyard and we, they had a well pump there and we were using the pump. And the pumps were just a life server, you know. In the heat, Brian and me, we drank so much water, litres and litres of it. Just it would evaporate from you immediately. Especially because we were always riding at the wrong time of the day in the insane heat. We just seemed to ride from water pump to water pump. These pumps were the focal point of each village. Women in saris would be bashing their clothes clean and kids would be filling up jugs and buckets to take home. But we, we had no shame. We'd, we'd rock up and up at the pump and one of us would work the pump while the other one was on all fours, dunking their heads under the water. The locals generally thought it was a crack-up. We're laid in this farmer's yard and he's shown us to these little straw beds and we're laid on these straw beds and his kids are fanning us. <laughs> his little kids. Fanning us away, sort of looking up, half asleep, looking up at these beautiful, smiling little faces. We were entertainment. We were just different bikes, different bikes, different looking it was kind of like a reciprocal agreement when you got kindness given. You'd normally do something, you know, make them laugh or do something funny. The land, the land was pretty flat leading up to the start of the Himalaya. And we were gunning for, and we were gunning for the border. We stayed one night in a really skanky guest house. I woke up and... I was itching really bad. I said, Bri, Shan's torch, what? I jumped up out of bed and I dropped my pants and Bri's just cracking up laughing. It wasn't more just a bite on my ass. It was more like you couldn't see my ass for the bites. It's just like these big red lumps. I don't know if it's bed bugs or fleas. It had been six days and we're already on the border with Nepal in this town called Kathima, staying at the Best View Hotel, which our room overlooked an old railway line and a couple of telegraph poles. We'd, we'd gone into this marketplace and we're trying to find some decent food and the vendors were lifting up these lids and spooning through this like a curry soup. But it didn't look really appetising because you'd see all these really bad cuts of meat, like the bits that you don't normally eat. And to be like knuckles, hairy knuckles flowing to the surface and then dropping down again into this into this brew. We saw this this restaurant, a little cafe. The owner is at the door, this big, massive bear-like bloke, you know, his big portly belly, he's in his fifties. He's got like grey wavy hair and a handlebar mustache. Real jovial guy. Come in, come in, here, come on. Before we know it, he's given us a free bottle of cola each. These dusty bottles, he's just reef one out and he's, he's beckoning us over to a table. And he's, as we're walking, he's saying, he goes, me, before, wrestler. And he's sort of like tapping his feet and getting into this wrestling squat. And he's looking at me and Brian like he's going to take us down. <laughs> it's pretty intimidating because he's a big fella. And he saw our faces, you know, he just started laughing. Ah, da, da, da. Come on, sit down. Come on, sit down. Good food for you. Don't worry. 
So, just kidding. Sit down, sit. I sat at this table and not long after that, a bloke walks in and he's got a gun. He's kind of got it in that typical military stance, holding it like he's ready for action. Wrestler man, he looks at him like a pretty serious expression and then starts laughing. Ah, my security! And he's slapping this guy on the back and this bloke's only like a skinny bloke and he's buckling under these big slaps and the gun's flying all around, sort of flailing around the restaurant with his barrels pointing at us and pointing at the ceiling. Me and Briar slowly sliding under the table. Next day, we're riding toward the border and we saw this big fancy bridge, these big arches. It's actually called the uh, Bambasa Barrage. We went over that and then there's another bridge called the Mahali River Bridge. On Google Maps now, there's another bridge that leads into Nepal, but back then there must have been a bridge missing because we ended up, vividly remember, we had to walk across this weir and trucks were driving across it as well. Sort of, we sort of waded along this algae rocks trying to get across with his bikes. This river was massive. It's a big delta river. It went right up into the Himalaya and bordered India and Nepal, called the Sharda River. Went up to sort of three and a half thousand meters. When we'd gone through the Indian side of the border, it was really low key. It was just like a little shed. And this guy was there. He had a, I think he had a sarong and a, a white vest on. And he's got his kid sat on his knee. And he was drilling us a bit. <laughs> Looked at the passports. Oh. Why, why are you leaving India? Don't you like India? I said, oh, no, no, yeah, we, we're just going to Nepal. Hmm. He had us sat there for ages. I thought he was going to say there was some sort of issue. I just felt that way with all officials crossing borders. He sent his kid off with a passport to go and get stamped somewhere. I don't know, it must have been an outpost or something. The Indian brochure that the embassy had sent me back then had this amazing poverty filter. There's all these princesses in these beautiful saris and handsome dudes in suits and robes. And all this wildlife running around this lush rainforest. And then the lush paddies and all this amazing food that was just divine. It was an absolute contrast to where we were, you know, in the backwaters, in the poor areas where food was really simple. And it didn't have that much nutrition in it. And it was a battle. But we did end up back in India. We came back in later on. So uh, we gave it a second chance, and to be fair, we enjoyed it a lot more too. It was in West Bengal. The, the little cute kid, he come back with the passports, he's running up, he's out of breath, and he hands the passports back, and he, he smudged my stamp with his thumb in his excitement. After the shed, we had to wade across another weir to get to Nepal, and we come up on this bank and just... There's no one around, so we just started riding through this village. And there's still no one around, so we just... I think we were a bit... Um, we weren't that savvy back then about border crossings because it's not something we did manually. You know, normally you're flying through an airport. So we just took off. We're riding through this village and 
looking at where we're going to go because our map actually ran out in India. There was just this big blank space from Nepal. So just a real remote, low-key village. There was dirt road, piglets running around, chickens and goats. But it was instantly quieter. It was much more peaceful than in the Indian side. There was no real obvious... um, immigration point there was no gate or anything we just rode off through this village we had this voice behind us and we stopped riding this guy's excuse me excuse me please yeah yes sorry you need visa where are you going (laughs) so we ended up back at this bloke's house he'd he was asleep in his hammock when we'd gone past and he'd swung out and run after us in his in his uh, sandals we got back to this kind of open, this open-fronted house. He had to shoo the chickens out the front, and he's got this desk there. He actually let us pay in Indian rupees, which was good, because just being over the border, it didn't make much difference to him. So we paid him the money, and he a photo? <laughs> oh, no. Um, we ain't got a photo. He goes, oh, this is a problem. You, you need photo. Oh, shit. I think back then the nearest place to get a photo was back to Delhi, New Delhi. And he said, oh, you need to return. Get photo, can't return here. We, we just couldn't think of anything worse. I think we would have rather gone over the Himalaya into Tibet than go back along that road. I had my wallet open and he'd seen this, this American dollar in the front of my wallet. He said, oh, give me, the, uh, give me that dollar and uh, I'll take the photos later. Made sense to us. <laughs> Seemed logical. And, and that's how we got into Nepal. Not much further down, we, we met these local farmers. And one of them had actually drawn us a little map on a piece of cardboard showing us where we had to go. 